Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand now for the reading of our sermon text this evening, Romans 8.28. One verse tonight. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Our Father, as we meditate on this verse, as your word is preached, I pray that you would penetrate our hearts that every one of our thoughts and every one of our meditations would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, please be seated. The father of a dear friend of mine said that he was never so sure of the love of God as when he laid one of his children in a fresh grave and put dirt on top of the casket. He was never so sure of the love of God than at those points. He lost two young children and one in the prime of his life, around 18 years old. But for him to say that he was more sure of the love of God when he laid them in the ground, that's a statement of faith, right? That's a statement of faith. It is to have Romans 8.28 as the cloak around one's mind and around one's heart. Right? I've often heard people say that you should not bring up Romans 8.28 when people have had some difficulties, some affliction, some difficulty happen in their lives. And I say on the contrary. Right? There is nothing so bleak as to reject God's superintending goodness in the difficulties of life in this fallen world. How is it more comforting to push thoughts of God's ultimate purposes in bringing everything that occurs to pass for his own glory than it is to rest in the knowledge that God causes, I mean, that, that, that God causes all things that come to pass and he does so for his glory's purposes, right? How is it more comforting to think that, that we shouldn't mention those things when difficulties happen? Jeremiah Burroughs in a book the, the men of our church have been reading, and it's, it's been a wounding book, said the following. He said, Oh, my brethren, retain good thoughts of God. Take heed of judging God to be a hard master. Make good interpretations of his ways. And that is a special means to help you to contentment in all of one's course. Yeah, but... But dementia? How is that of God? Right? We are perfectly willing to see that as the fruit of the fall of mankind and the brokenness of nature. But are we willing to see it as God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him? 
Is there any comfort in knowing not just that we, we endured suffering, but that we endured suffering by the hand of God? Is there any help in living life with these, you know, these two poles in tension, hating the ravages of disease and sin and death on the one side, and the knowledge that God brings about whatsoever comes to pass on the other side. Holding those two things in tension. Well, dear friends, would you rather live in a universe without a powerful and providential God? Would you rather live in a universe where the suffering we endure is random? Where the suffering we endure is blind? It's meaningless. It's unguided. Would that give you comfort? That's far more difficult for me to embrace, right, than a God who brings prosperity and calamity, right? It was a loving father that gave Dr. Fultz dementia. It was not blind fate. It was not mother nature or the miscalculations of some you know, evolutionary mechanism. God did this. God did this. And God does all things very well. He does all things perfectly well. Right, it is those thoughts that, that carried Sandy and her sons through the loving care they provided for their husband and father. Right, they knew that God was in this. And that... He was working all things out according to the kind intention of his will. Yes, this suffering was good. Right? This is the Christian faith. This is the Christian faith. To look at the hardest aspects of this life and to proclaim that God was not only not ignorant of them, but that, he, that, that God purposed them for this reason. He's jealous for his own glory. He will have all glory. Now, if that is not helpful to you, if that is not your confession of faith, well, then you do not have good thoughts of God. Contrary to Burroughs' exhortation to us, and not having good thoughts of God, you know what will happen. You will quickly descend into bitterness. And you will do so at things far less permanent than the death of someone you, you loved fiercely. Right? If you do not have good thoughts of God, you'll descend into bitterness over the most trivial of matters. Right? Envy of what other people have. People having different views on political matters than yourself. Right? Not, not being thin and attractive will cause bitterness, right? Not, not being smart, not getting your way will lead to bitterness. But what God does, dear friends, what God does, he does well. And all things occur by God's direct superintendence over them. There is not, as our friend Dr. Spur would say, there's not a rogue molecule in the whole universe, right, that does not do what God commanded it to do. And so at the end of the day, it's the Christian's duty 
and joy, not just duty, but joy to say, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Calvin, John Calvin summarizes the teaching of Romans 8.28 with these words. He says, all things which happen to the saints are so overruled by God that what the world regards as evil, the issue shows to be good, right? The outcome shows to be good. That God gave this means it is good. So now, you know, Romans 8.28 is glorious. It's glorious comfort. Now that we have that doctrine down, that, that God causes all things that come to pass and that those things come to pass are for God's uh, people, God's glory, let's drill down a bit deeper. Here's a question. Here's a question. How can God's people look on something like disease and come away with anything positive? Well, here's the answer. There's, a, there's an easy answer to that. Worse than Dr. Fultz's neurological disease, which only defined him during the last part of his life, right, was another disease. One that defined him from early, early, early on in his life. Right? Did you know that he had a wasting disease more pervasive and powerful than, than dementia? Did you know that it was a hereditary disease that he received from his own father and mother? Right? Did you know that his father and mother had the same disease that, that he had? Of course, you know what I'm talking about by now. I'm talking about the disease of, of sin. Sin. The disease of sin affected Dr. Fultz in more profound and lasting ways than any other ailment he ever endured. Yes, even more than dementia. He, he, like all of you here today, have a disease. He had a disease that, if untreated, requires a terrible medicine. If sin goes untreated, it, it requires an eternal bath of fire. Sin afflicts our minds, making us have terrible thoughts of the one who created us, right? Sin affects and afflicts our relationships, elevating self-love over love of others. Sin affects our hearts, which happily deceive us all the time. Sin affects even the soul, staining it with guilt and impurity so that it needs atonement and repentance, Right? Sin affects all the members of our body, our eyes, our ears, our feet, our mouth, our tongue, making them serve unrighteousness rather than their glorious creator. We are so sick with sin. It is a disastrous disease that not only has a pervasive influence on how we live, it will affect even how we live after we die. Right? Sin comes with an eternally relevant prognosis. Not just for this life. 
Sin floods us with guilt, pollution, and consequences from that sin. And that sin is, is, is passed on to all of us because of our connection with that first man, Adam, who sinned against God and brought a tragic end to the holiness, to the love, to the joy that marked his relationship to his heavenly father. Now, if you, if, if you are a Christian, you know I'm being deadly serious right now as I speak of sin. You know I'm being very, very serious. If you're not a Christian, you think I'm being rather cute at a funeral and rather inappropriate, perhaps. You want to dismiss what I'm saying as the ravings of a lunatic rather than the voice of God to you this day. That's what you want to do. Your response doesn't deter me, though, because I know you are suffering in your sin. You are suffering in your sin, and I know the Holy Spirit can change even the hardest of hearts because he changed mine. He changed Dr. Foltz. And he would plead with you to go after the cure that he found for the most serious disease he had. So sin, sin is every man's most serious problem. I can't compete with that. <laughs> listen, listen, listen. I, I get one chance to talk to many of you. Sin is every man's most serious problem. The reason sin is serious is because God is holy. You've been taught wrong about God, right? All the baggage of our culture that teaches dumb things about God that are not from Scripture. What Scripture says is God is holy, and being holy, he loves what is righteous and abhors what is evil. Right? And the proof of his hatred for sin is that he was perfectly willing at a certain time in history, to wipe out all mankind. Save one family, Noah's family. He wiped them off the face of the earth because every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil all the time. But even after that flood, nothing had changed. Even after God, God wiped out humanity, nothing had changed. He looks down from heaven. Even now, he looks down from heaven, even today, this minute, and sees that all men have gone astray. They are all alike perverse. There is no one who does good. No, not one. Psalm 7:11 teaches us that God is angry with the wicked every day. They don't tell you that in the Hallmark cards, right? God is angry with the wicked every day. The psalmist continues after saying those words. He says, if a man does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. Amazingly enough, there, though, there, there is no cure for many of the physical ailments that afflict our bodies. There is a cure for your sin. There's a cure. And this is the cure that most animated 
the mind and heart of this servant of God who is no longer with us. He found a cure for sin. He found that cure. Right? Dr. Fultz, along with all of us, had, had or have a ravaging disease that no doctor could cure. He was born in sin, and yet God, in his infinite mercy, cut through all those noetic effects of sin, that sinful heart, that sinful mind, that sinful stained soul, and opened his eyes to the glorious atoning work of Jesus Christ. And, and it is right at that point when, when a man realizes, when a person realizes that there is a God and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. It's right at that point that he can accept that verse that I opened the sermon with. God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Those who have faith in God have laid aside their hostility of mind toward God, and have been renovated in the inner man. Those who have faith in God have begun to give thanks to their creator, and they are able to give thanks to him in everything and for everything that comes to pass. In prosperity and adversity. How? 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 Because they know that no matter what they suffer in this life, it could be worse. They know that no matter how intense the suffering, God has rescued them from eternal punishment. The Apostle Paul wrote the following in his second letter to the Corinthians. And it gets at what I've been saying. Here's what he says. We do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, the Apostle Paul goes on, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be 
paid back, recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Christian, Christians oftentimes groan in this body, right? Groaning in this body, but they look beyond the here and now and they gaze all the way into heaven. They do not fear that judgment that is coming for all men because they have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. How? It's very easy, dear friends. It's very easy to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Believe in the Son of God. Believe in the Son of God. Specifically, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And you know what? If you do that, you will be saved. You will be saved. Again, how? Well, when a person believes in Jesus Christ in the heart, it results in righteousness. So though we are sinners who sin, Jesus, when we believe, gives us his righteousness. This huge gift of his righteousness, right? And so when the prophet Malachi asks this question, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. The answer is very simple. Those who by faith are clothed in Jesus' righteousness. They can endure the day of his coming. Those who do not have that alien righteousness, well, they... they they will not be able to endure the day of his fierce wrath. They will realize that they had their good things in this life and will have nothing coming close to that good in the life to come. God is angry with sin. And God provides the way of escape from his own anger. Faith in Jesus Christ. He's just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now, having said that, and I think Dr. Foltz, if he were present here, would be adding his amen. I want to turn to one final thought. Just days ago, Dr. Foltz breathed his last breaths. What happened after that occurred? For those of you who do not believe there is a God, you think that nothing happened. Nothing occurred. You do not believe there is a soul or that man is an eternal being. You just think our dying loved ones cease to be. I don't even know how to wrap my head around such a dreadful view. It is a horror to me to think that our scientists and our psychologists and our philosophers have gotten man right. They, they have to suppress the glory of the rainbow. right? They, they have the testimony of the stars in, in God's heaven screaming at them. And they have to maintain their godless blindness. 
to not receive the lesson from even those stars. In order to maintain their integrity, to maintain the consistency of their view that man is but an animal and at death his existence is snuffed out, they undeniably follow the advice of Job's wicked wife, just curse God and die. Get on with your non-existence already. Now, I pray that, the, uh, that, that your eyes would be opened up to the glory of God, that each of you would see how he has created all things visible and invisible to testify to his power, to his greatness. That way, when you stare up into the sky at night and see the Milky Way, you will, will not come to the conclusion that, you know, man is small and insignificant but rather that you would come to the conclusion that man is consequential because God created an entire universe merely to testify to the souls on this planet that he is and that he is powerful. How many millions and millions and billions and trillions of light, light years and yada yada, I don't even know how to describe it, did he create? to testify to us on this planet who have souls about his greatness. Your problem, if you do not believe in Jesus, is that you think so little of man. You think so little of him. On the other hand, the Christian who has been given ears to hear and eyes to see God testifying to his greatness both in creation and in the sacred scriptures finds out that man is an eternal soul and an eternal being. He does not deny what every man knows almost by intuition, that man lives even after he dies. That this life and the material of this universe is not all there is. And so when we die, our souls depart the body and go to one of two places there to await what God has promised to do, which is to raise everybody from the ground, reanimate them, and then put them before his judgment seat. It is appointed unto man once to die, then judgment. Here's some help from the Westminster Larger Catechism. The, the Westminster Catechisms are concise summaries of the teaching of Scripture. And on death, it has this question. I love the answer, right? What is the communion in glory with, with Christ, which the members of the invisible church enjoy immediately after death? Immediately after that last breath. And the answer is this. The communion in glory with Christ, which the members of the invisible church enjoy immediately after death, is in that their souls are then made perfect in holiness and received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies, which even in death continue to be united to Christ and rest in their graves as in their beds. What a statement till at the last day they be again united to their souls. Whereas the souls of the... Oh, it goes on. There's, there's more than that. Whereas the souls of the wicked are at their death cast into hell, where they remain 
in torments and utter darkness, and their bodies kept in their graves as in their prisons, not as in their beds, as in their prisons, till the resurrection and judgment of the great day. So think, think of the glory of the last three, four days for Dr. Fultz, who is now freed from his most horrible disease, sin. He has for those three days been beholding the face of God in light and glory. He will do so until the great day of judgment comes, at which point this body that we see before us will be resurrected from the grave. And at that point, this body and that departed soul will be reunited. And he shall be forever with the Lord, living in a world free from sin, free from suffering, free from death, free from any terrible prognosis, free from depression, free from everything that would make us uncomfortable. And that resurrection day will be glorious as all the souls that have ever lived face God, either clothed in Christ's righteousness or clothed in their own unrighteousness. The bodies of all will come up from the graves. And scripture says that body is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. What glory. What joy. What honor. Right? So, dear friends, I hope you hear what I'm saying today, right? I hope you will receive the final testimony of Dr. Fultz, which, which he makes with his dead body even now and will do from the grave until Christ's return. Believe in Jesus. Believe in God. Live for your good things in the life to come. Live in such a way that a disease of the body is far from the worst thing that could happen to you. Stop being so short-sighted. right? And deal with eternity because one day, and it could be tonight, one day your body will be resting in the ground. And where will, you, where, where will your soul be at that point? Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Let me close with three quotes that I hope will, you will contemplate. Again, I've been reading some uh, Pascal, French Christian mathematician. He wrote in his Pensee these, this. Knowing God without knowing our wretchedness leads to pride. Knowing our wretchedness without knowing God leads to despair. Knowing Jesus Christ is the middle course because in him we find both God and our wretchedness. Augustine, the fourth century Christian pastor contemplating God's birth as a child, wrote this, and I hope it will make you think of about the immensity of God's gift to you. Man's maker was made man 
that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, the strength, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. And finally, hear the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus himself. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Amen.